It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 71. This is your host, Chris Blanchard. Nate Parks raises 20 acres of vegetables at Silverthorne Farm in West Central Indiana. Sells his produce to restaurants, a custom-packed CSA program, and at an on-farm store. In this episode, we dig into the nuts and the bolts of how Silverthorne Farm works, with particular attention to how Nate has used the scale of his operation to break into the restaurant market in Indianapolis. Nate also describes the system that Silverthorne Farm uses to manage his unique online ordering system that allows his CSA members to pick what they want when they want it. Nate also shines a light on the strategy he's used to scale up and equip his farm, and how he's leveraged employee involvement to do more with his farm than he could have done on his own, all while creating a work environment with excellent retention rates. Along the way, Nate shares the story of getting his start as a pumpkin farmer, losing everything in the housing crisis, and rebuilding his farm from scratch. With a ton of heart and a ton of practical information, this episode is the epitome of what I dreamed of with the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thank you for being here with me. Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. This episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Growing for Market Magazine, America's most respected source for news and ideas about the business of growing and selling vegetables, fruits, cut flowers, plants, herbs, and other food products. GrowingForMarket.com. Nate Parks, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thanks, Chris. Awesome to be here. Love the uh, love the podcast. I haven't haven't missed an episode yet, so it's uh, such a great way to be able to connect with so many different farmers across the country. I just I love Thursday mornings. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. It's a it's a, it's an honor for me to be able to connect with so many great farmers all across the country, and actually to have an excuse to do it. So <laughs> yeah, right. Thank you. Um, so I, I thought I thought it'd be great to start off today with kind of the story of your farm of Silverthorne Farm. There in um, you're about an hour north of Indianapolis, right? Yep. So we're an hour north of Indianapolis, and about 15 minutes east of Lafayette, West Lafayette, where uh, Purdue University is. So, uh, Yep, West Central, I guess, uh, Indiana. And if I understand right, you actually grew up on a diversified family farm. Right, um, about an hour south of here. Um, so both of my grandfathers were farmers. Uh, my dad farmed with his his dad, um, which was the, the farm I grew up on. And then my, my mom's dad and my uncles and cousins farmed with him, um, kind of a, uh, about a half hour, 40 minutes away from us. So. I was kind of one of that last lucky generations, and I was in the mid '80s through the early '90s. Uh, got to grow up uh, with Grandpa's farm, and it was about six to eight hundred acres. You know, and he he raised purebred red pole livestock cows. Had about a hundred head, um, about a hundred sows. It, we failed to finish outside, um, and then lots of hay. And then he did, you know, he he did the corn and bean thing, but his corn, you know, was silage for the cows, feed for the hogs. Um, seed corn for DeKalb Seed Corn Company, and then um, lots of oats. I mean, it's just, it was a huge diversity of stuff he did. And, and that was before GMOs. You know, I remember 10 years old, he put me on a narrow front um, tractor with a six-row cultivator and said, uh, you know, said, go at it. And, you know, maybe rode around a couple rounds with me. But, yeah, he let me and my, my two brothers have so much freedom to to go out and really learn how to work the ground and in the ways that he did, you know, which was totally different than kind of a conventional farm at today. You know, you didn't stay on the farm though. Right. So this uh, grandpa and, and grandma were married uh, or were together for 55 years and grandma had passed uh, would have been, I think my freshman year in high school and uh, which was pretty hard on grandpa for sure. And he, he kind of started dating a little bit in his late, in his what mid eighties and, and the lady he ended up um, 
dating, decided she didn't like the farm and wanted to travel. Uh, so he ended up the summer before my senior year, he, he sold the majority of the land, um, so they could travel. And she actually passed away about two months later. And three months after that, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And, and so it was like this just huge, crazy, um, mess there for about a year, right before I was a senior. Um, he'd sold most all the land other than the, the home place where dad still lives some 40 acres there. Um, yeah, so, so my path had to change pretty immediately and kind of what, what I thought. You know, both my older brother and I um, were the ones who were really involved with it. Um, kind of had to had to think about what we were going to do from that point. And, and you know, unfortunately, you know, it was great to be able to grow up in that um, situation. But by the time that would have been ninety four, um, really the the education in, in our rural America was you need a thousand acres of corn and beans to farm or, or go somewhere else. And that was all I knew. You know, so that was to me the forty acres of home. And we still had a. I think my older brother rented the 200 acres that we had rented for 50 years across the road for a few more years, but that was, you know, there was no way we could ever make a living on it. You know, that was kind of the education we had at that time. So you went off to college. Did you go to Purdue then? I did. I went to Purdue. I had, uh, had, uh, aspirations of wrestling there. Um, and it ended up, I wasn't a great student. I enjoyed school quite a bit. Um, I only, I was there for about a year and a half I, and I ended up actually having a stroke, uh, when I turned 19, um, at Purdue and, and it just kind of changed those aspirations of being able to wrestle or, or sports. And, um, and so, yeah, I left a semester later and, um, started a construction company, a, a, a construction remodeling company when I was 20, I just turned 21, I think. Oh really? Yeah. So it's been 20 years ago now that I haven't really had a job <laughs> and, and really <laughs> the only job I ever had was for, for grandpa really on a farm. So yeah, I'm, I'm the independent guy and so yeah I, I did that for uh, for about 10 years i was i was a builder um, um built a lot of custom homes um and then kind of rolled into uh, buying and selling properties um in the meantime i met my wife and we had uh <clears throat> we'd been living on a lake and and kind of got tired of it was you know it wasn't town but it was kind of felt like town to us and i you know that whole time i just i still i just wanted to farm again i really I thought maybe I'd build enough houses that I could buy that thousand acres and, and farm corn and beans, you know? I mean, that was still kind of that mindset I had. And we, we found a 30 acre piece. Well, it was a, that was a farm we'd rented when I was a kid that we always uh, bailed hay on. I, I just loved the place. So we bought that and put up a house and, you know, in a barn and, uh, <clears throat> there was 10 acres tillable. And I really, obviously I didn't want corn and beans on it. It was, didn't make any sense. And, so a neighbor said, hey, let's, uh, he said, you plant it to alfalfa, and I'll bail it, and we'll split the profit at the end of the year, and it'll be great. And, and so that was great for me. I just get hay back on it, and I have to look at corn and beans. So, and, I, and it's funny, because this is kind of how I got started. I, so I, I put out $1,600 worth of seed. And that next year, you know, we went through the season and bailed all the hay, and at the end of the year, he gave me a check for uh, 385 bucks. <laughs> and, and I just said, I, I just look. I told him, I was like, you know, I, I can just not lose twelve hundred dollars some other way. And, and so I plowed it all up, and uh, we still had a little tractor at Dad's place, and you know, a couple like a two bottom plow and a couple of little pieces, and and kind of looked around. There was an Amish produce auction south of us, and I knew they had they sold a lot of pumpkins down there. And I thought, well, there was a sandy hilltop, and I knew enough as a farm kid to know that pumpkins and melons like the sandier sandier ground so we we walked that whole that 10 acres with a 
nail pouch and a piece of PVC pipe and planted it all to pumpkins and melons. And that, and that would have been, <laughs> I guess that would have been 06, I think, is when we did it. would have been that first year, I guess, that you could say that I started. And it was funny how, you know, I had no idea about organic agriculture or small, anything like, like we are now today. Um, so I bought all these chemicals and all this stuff. And I, you know, of course I didn't have any way to apply it anyway, but I never used it. And that year ended up being just a soaking wet year. And of course on that gravel though, the, um, the pumpkins and melons were just, it was incredible. I mean, you could walk across the whole farm on pumpkins. Um, wow. and down at the auction, it was a lot, it was really heavy clay soil and they, they just, their pumpkin crop was horrible. So we just made bank, you know, it was, I, I, I want to say we sold, you know, 10 or $15,000 worth of pumpkins down there at an auction. And, and so I was hooked and, uh, I kind of began my thought that maybe there is something I can do, you know? I mean, how did you, I mean, I don't know, 10 acres of pumpkins, I mean, kind of on a lark and, and you've got <laughs> yeah. the construction business going and, and I mean, it's 2006. So this is before the, the whole housing downturn happens. And do you just decide to walk off into vegetable production? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, that's so like the, then, then comes the dramatic part of, of the change in my life. And that was the housing downturn. Um, because, you know, for like I said, for a long time, we were doing a lot of custom homes. We did, you know, 10 or 15 homes we'd build a year. And I got it. Then I kind of got tired of the customers, you know, because um, generally when you're spending three or four hundred thousand dollars with somebody, um, you, you've got a lot to say about the, the situation, which I understood. But um, the housing market was such for a while that um, it really didn't matter how many houses I bought. We were we were selling them. You know, we were we were buying and selling every ninety days or so. And so when the housing crash came, we owned eight properties that were for sale, and. Uh, and, and I think it's hard to, for some people to understand when the crash happened, it, it was almost overnight and instantaneous. And, um, and so, yeah, we had about $2 million worth of property sitting there that we were trying to, you know, all my cash was tied up in that um, on the renovations. And, and uh, we lost everything, basically, including uh, including that, uh, a 30-acre place. Um, <clears throat> sorry. So yeah, we had to we had to kind of think about what to do next. <laughs> but anyways, so the crash happens, we lost it all, and uh, and thankfully, you know, I've got a wife who who <clears throat> trusted me and believed in me, and uh, and we kind of so that was it was basically that was two, it kind of began in '07 really, and when I we'd plan it again. In 07, and by that time I knew that there was there was obviously problems. So I took a, um, a delivery route for Bonnie Plants, which is that that plant company that's in all the Lowe's and um, WalMarts and all these other places. Which is kind of a spring route that I ran for them, uh, delivering plants. It was kind of like a February to June. There's all these excess plants that they just you know you just take plants out and throw them away. So I just kept bringing them home and putting them out. Um, that would have been 07. And, and so by the time that route was done, it was mid June and I was, and we'd kind of put enough stuff together that I decided to go try a farmer's market in July. And, and really the first market we'd ever went to was the, the first time I'd ever seen a farmer's market. I'd never been to one or knew anything about it. And, but it was great. We had, we had some success and I really enjoyed it. Um, and I just, you know, I had never really had a job. and I just didn't want one. I really wanted to farm again. And we'd had enough success that I believed that there was something we could do. And 
and and at that time, you know, throughout those couple of years, I, I all of a sudden I, you know, I, I find Elliot Coleman and, and Joel South and all these other people who are telling me that I can do it, you know, and that there is a way. And and so I just we jumped, and, and so then it, then it became we had no place to live anymore. We had to find we had to figure that out, you know, figure the land out. Um, and the forty acres of dad's, it wasn't something that he was really interested in having us do there. So, so that wasn't really an option, but I'd, I'd seen the, I knew there was, there was this, this guy that had, um, he'd been buying land and putting trees, trees on all these, all those properties and was driving all the farmers around crazy. Um, but I knew one of the properties he had bought, there was this vacant house on it. Nobody'd lived there for 10 years or so. Um, so I sent him a letter. I said, Hey, uh, this is who I am and what I want to do. I'll, I'll redo your whole property if I can have a five-year lease on 10 acres. And like, he calls me back. He's like, yeah, sounds great but you should probably come look at this place before you commit to that. And so, so I did, I went and met him and it was, the place was shambles. It was definitely a, you know, the walls are kind of falling in and windows out. Um, but he, and, but he threw me an offer of, he said, listen, I'll pay for all the materials. You keep track of your time and we'll just deduct that time off the lease. And it ended up, um, it was four years of rent paid for. Um, and we got that. It was, uh, it, the first year was 12 acres and then, we added 10 that second year. Um, so it was, you know, it was 25 acres that, that we had rent free for those first, uh, three or four years of, um, just trying to figure out what to do. Cause I had no, you know, I didn't have any idea what I was getting into. There's no doubt, but I think it was, it was one of those, I just kind of threw myself into it, you know? And so at this time, I mean, you're really thinking like you're, you're out of the housing business and you're fully into the farming business and, and committed to that. Flat out. Yeah. That was, um, so Jensen uh, is our our oldest son is um, is six or he'll be seven in October. So that would have been um, uh, so yeah, the other the summer of '09, I, I redid the property and and was farming there. And then we moved in first week of October, and then Jensen was born in the house October 10th or uh, 12th. So yeah, um, wow, <laughs> we were we were we were full tilt and uh, totally committed to it, and and just had no business farming. 10 acres that first year, 20 to the second. You know, I don't have equipment or knowledge or, or any of that stuff, but that's, uh, you know, for me and, and what I came from, uh, it was just, it was, it just wasn't that much. You know, I was used to six or 800 acres and I figured surely I can, I can manage this. What kind of crops were you growing in those early years? The, it was just, it was the full range that really the second year we, we really took off and just, and, you know, I planted all that, all those excess plants. But then when we moved to that other, the farm, um, and that we were running, uh, you know, I went to full on market scale farming, you know, basically like we do today, you know, so there's that 40 or 50 different crops or whatever that we do. And, um, and largely, you know, it, it's ridiculous, but, you know, I was, you know, reading all the books I did and I think, I think it was a new organic grower. I think Coleman references, you know, you could, you know, one person should be able to handle a couple acres. And so I took that as well. Then surely I can do five or 10. If he's talking about a standard right. person, you know, <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's just talking about a mortal, you know? Right, right. And, and I had a tractor, you know, I, I, the, the one thing I ended up with after, after we lost everything, I still had my lawnmower and I had a, I had Polaris Ranger and I still have the range of the mower I sold to buy a tractor. Um, and that's what we started with, you know, this, this old Belarus tractor and, uh, and an earthway cedar and, and just kind of went at it and, you know, banging my head against the wall. And I'd hate to know, um, you know, when we talk about so many of the figures today of what we make an acre, it was, it was not that back then it was definitely a whole lot different situation, but it was, it was a lot of therapy I needed to, I think in a lot of ways for, 
for kind of that situation we had just went through, you know? Um, yeah, it was incredible. And so, um, during that time we were, Emily's dad, um, owns or his, or I guess her grandfather, it would have been her grandmother. So her grandmother owns 120 acres in Rossville, which is where the farm is now. Um, she had passed and it was in her, it was her grandfather's now and, and soon to be Randy, which is Emily's father, his land. And Randy really, you know, his whole goal once he got this land was just to let it go back to, um, just let it go back to nature. That was what he was going to do with it. It had been cashing it out for 35 years before we took it over. Um, and so when we came along, he, he really loved what we were doing, really supported us and, uh, and thought, you know, and we talked a lot, like, how about if we come up and farm up there? You know, it was a big move, um, definitely for us. And it was an hour away, still within our marketing range, um, but kind of out of my home territory. And we were all on board, except, uh, grand, grandpa didn't, did not like the idea. He wanted corner beans and, and, uh, and that was kind of at the same time when we, we moved into the other farm. And he said, I'll tell you what, uh, two years from now, I'll sign the farm over to Randy and you guys do whatever you want, but I'm not, I'm not letting you on here now. And so two years passed and then he did that. He, he signed, signed the farm over to Randy, um, to where he could do what he wanted with it. And, and at that point, um, we, we had the option to, to be able to come up and up to the farm and, and kind of take this place over which was incredible access to 120 acres for sure. The the biggest problem at that point then was it was a 120 acre cornfield there, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't, there wasn't a driveway, let alone house, water buildings, infrastructure of any kind. Um, so how do you afford well, to do and, that? And conventional and conventional cornfield, right? I mean, yeah, you're absolutely. dealing with something that's been in GMO and roundups for 10 years. And, and just really raped. I mean, in the end, I mean, it's definitely, you know, if I was going to go buy vegetable land, this, this farm would not be on that list. But it was also an opportunity, you know, at the time, um, land, and it's gone down a little bit here now, but it was in farmland, good land was ten to 12,000 an acre. Um, so, so, you know, to think I could spend a million five on 120 acres was just, that, that wasn't reasonable. So it was, it was the opportunity. Um, and, and in the end, Emily has um, three other siblings. They're all, one's in Honduras and two are in California. They, they didn't have any, any interest in the farm and, and Emily did. And that, and that was, you know, her dad's commitment to us is that, you know, I, I'll pass the farm to you if we can keep it in agriculture, keep it in the family. Because her, like you'd said, her grandfather was, I think her great grandfather, five greats back, I think in, in 1860 bought this place. So it's been kind of through their family for so many years. Um, so, yeah, early on, we started that ball rolling and just tried to figure out how in the world are we going to pull it off as far as building everything. We, you know, obviously, our credit was shot. We'd, you know, we'd, we'd lost all that stuff. And, and we, weren't, we were making money. You know, we, were, we were able to continue to, to farm, um, but we didn't have a lot of capital to work with. And right. so one winter, I needed another tractor um, that the Belarus wasn't quite cutting it. And um, a friend of mine redid all of ours. He kind of lives up here by Rossville. And so he wanted a, an office in his pole barn and a bathroom and some other stuff. So I did that and trade for this Oliver tractor. And in the process, I drive by the farm almost every day when I was coming up here to do that job. And and um, one day I just there was an equipment dealer right close to us. So I kind of went over there to see what they had. And there's this old farmhouse sitting up on top of a hill. And you could tell they'd, it was winter, so it was just corn stock. You could tell they'd farmed all the way up around it. So I went like I used to always do when I was buying and selling and kind of broke into the house and, to see what it was like. And you could tell it was, it was vacant. So I figured out who owned it. Or I called immediately after that, I called Emily and said, Hey, I found our house. 
And, uh, you know, of course she thinks I'm, <laughs> she thinks I'm crazy or, or whatever. And, uh, but so I called the people and, and, uh, said, Hey, I'll get rid of this house for you if I can have it. And, you know, kind of like the other farm too, as luck would have it. I said, okay, that's fine. If you can get it out of there and leave it where we can plant more corn and beans, get more rent, then that's great. You can have it. Um, so yeah, that's what we did. We started, I found a guy to move it for me and we moved the house about, I don't know, about a mile and a half across some cornfields over here to the, to the farm we're at now. And that was really, once I found that house, I knew that I could redo it. And, um, then I, I knew that I could afford to do that, you know, and I knew that I could do it quickly compared to building a new house and, and coming up with all that. And then it also gave me the opportunity, um, so her dad ended up giving us 20 acres. And in this county, you have to have 20 acres to, to build a home unless you rezone the whole thing. So he gave us 20 acres, right. and we moved the house and got it on the, on the property, which gave me enough equity um, to get a mortgage to build the buildings, put all the, you know, the water lines and power and infrastructure and everything in. So it was kind of this long, drawn-out process for a few years there. That, um, so we moved the house the winter of 11-12. And, um, then the winter of 12, 13, I moved my four greenhouses, built the two 40 by 80 pole barns, redid the house and moved in <laughs> April 13th, right? For the, wow. Yeah, it was <laughs> right. Just in time, just in time for the season. <laughs> it was out of control the entire season of 2013, that first year here. But, um, but yeah, now it's, you know, this is the fourth year here, the start of the fourth season. And we're finally about finished with infrastructure and fairly well set up and, and rolling, you know. And, and so when we came up, we just took the, the, the farm is split almost down the middle um, with this old old driveway tree line that was left kind of coming back to a, an eight acre woods. And, and on the east side is 40 acres on the west side is 60 when we moved up. So in the in that um, in 2012, I was still farming in Darlington, the old farm. I planted that 40 acres up here to clover in 2012. Um just the 40 and that's that's what we've been farming on until this year we're taking we've taken over the other 60 um and it, it's mo there's mostly cover crops over there and 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 some clover and some you know some pasture and some stuff that just needs to be taken out of production so it just gives us a now we get the whole place to really rotate our crops through and it's a we're pretty excited for that and there's just no more corn and beans on this place which is which is great Yeah, I always say 20. Like, I think if we look at exactly, you know, if I measured exactly beds last year, it was 18. This year it'll be about 23. You know, I always say I do 20 acres. It's I kind of bounce up and down depending on uh, kind of what I feel like our, our markets can handle and where we can take some products. So uh, this year it'll be about 23, 24, something like that. Yeah. And rotating, and then and then that's all <laughs> rotating through this this much larger plot of ground then. And right. So on this 40 acres, that's, that's kind of the thing is on that 40 – you know, 2012 was the first year I was up here. Well, that's a drought year. And, and so I didn't ever see water on this farm. And 2013, well, I, we probably had 20 plus acres, 24 maybe on that, on that 40 acres. And, and I mean, like five or six of it was just underwater. If you, if you display, you know, oh. the great thing about Indiana is it's flat. The hard part is it, the drainage is not always that great. It's kind of roly poly. So you have all these little low wet spots. Um, so really on right. that 40 acre side, by the time I take out driveways and wetland areas uh, and some pasture and it's some other things, we're about 18 tillable that we're using. And I think on the 60 that we're taking over now, I mean, we'll kind of see how it goes, but I think there'll be another 30 or 40 over there. So maybe total, you know, actual bed space that we'll have is somewhere around 50, 60 acres. So yeah, it gives us, 
you know, production one year on one side and one year on the other. It's kind of ideal. It's where we're trying to get to. It's really great. Yeah, I'm excited. I mean, just, it seems crazy. So three three farms in nine years. <laughs> yeah. And and of course now and now you're on this piece of ground and I mean you guys you haven't stopped right you just got done putting in a, a new twenty thousand square foot greenhouse <laughs> right yeah so you know when we moved up here before in Darlington labor was always a real challenge for me and employees when we moved up here we had um, several um, several people a lot of the younger girls came up and just wanted to work they just were they saw me building all this stuff and they wanted to be a part of it and three of those girls have been this is their fourth year with me. Um, have stayed on and just incredible help. And one of them had just, just graduated this, this spring from, from Purdue and, and horticulture. She's just a really bright mind. And we'd always wanted a farm store here on the farm. Um, we tried it the first couple of years, didn't really work out. There was another um, kind of orchard and um, market uh, store here kind of in the country that's been open for like 25 years. So they kind of had that, um, that market because we're, we're a small community you know we're it's not like it's a big metropolitan area um but they in the in october they decided to close their doors so that kind of opened the opportunity for us to have for bedding plant sales vegetable sales and kind of a you know a farm market here on the farm you know in some capacity try to grab some of those um those long-term customers that they had had at the same time uh, Michael was graduating this spring and I wasn't positive that I was going to be able to keep her here. And I really wanted to have, and I know she loved the greenhouse um, and the flower production is something that she's really good at. Um, so all those things kind of came together and in, in November we, we made the decision like, okay, let's, um, let's try to capitalize on the situation. Um, give Micah some opportunity to, to be able to take over kind of that vegetable production area, the, the seedling production. Um, and she's doing some cut flower stuff, having a, we gave, she's got a CSA on the farm now for cut flowers. Um, give her some of that where we, you know, we can pay her as good as we can, but also give her an opportunity to, to have a little bit more stake and kind of her own enterprise. And, and I needed more tomato production space. We, we do a lot of heirloom tomatoes. So we found that, greenhouse up in uh detroit it was in a bunch of piles so i was hoping it was all <laughs> go back together and oh yeah goodness. so december we started putting it up and i think we opened the doors the last weekend in april and it was it's a solid 85 percent complete <laughs> knowing builders that's oftentimes how builders projects end up you know builder family projects yeah. end up right it's 85 you don't don't ever get the trim on if, if you're uh that's right if you're yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, my wife is incredibly used to that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it, it's really you know like, it, it's exciting for you know we we actually started harvesting tomatoes. We delivered our first box last week, May May 18th. So that was I was really excited coming out of that new house. And the winter production, it's a gutter connect, so it's it's just got so much interior space. I'm just I'm really excited for that kind of that gives us almost an acre under cover now. Um, so, wow. so yeah, I think it's it's going to be really exciting for the for the future of that wintergreen now i mean tell me in you know central indiana um and what do you guys freeze up in the winter time there i mean obviously you're it's too cold to grow tomatoes outside but is are you looking at year-round tomato production or are you really still thinking kind of the elliot coleman unheated model in the winter time and unheated spring production for the tomatoes yeah it's really an unheated um greens production we do heat our early tomato production in a couple of houses um but by and large the unheated i, I know i still we get we, we're definitely a, a cold zone five 
So it, you know, we we can do winter production all winter for sure. But I, I definitely, I also get pretty tired after a little while and uh, want a little bit of a break. So we generally take January and February off, um, but then kind of, you know, we go all the way through Christmas and then crank up, you know, every other week deliveries through February, March, April. Um, and and I'm I'm not really interested in going much more than that. Really, the winter production for me is we've got six people that are year-round um full-time and you know like three of those have been with us four years the other two three years um and then the other three people on our crew have been here too so it, i really um the value of those people coming back every year is just just incredible so the winter production gives me um cash flow to really keep them and and obviously we do well with it you know and, and really i ramp up uh, our storage crops to go with the winter greens production this kind of a long-term goal even for having year round work for people, that's pretty incredible employee retention that you've got there. I mean, <laughs> I to have that many people, I mean, sticking around, what are you guys doing right? I, I wish I knew because I would do more of it, you know, <laughs> but I think, you know, part of it definitely is, you know, giving, giving them some of their own enterprises within the farm and, um, like I say, with Micah and the, and the seedling production, we had a, another one of the girls um, took on on farm events and planning, and um, another girl is taking on, um, processing doing a lot of freezing and, and stuff for for winter sales on tomatoes and peppers and things like that and i'm giving them a piece of that for me that our, our standard vegetable production is what pays me and my bills and runs the farm if, if we can add any of these other things that really makes customers happy then um and it's something that you know my my employees that are dedicated to me are excited about then i'm, I'm going to give them a piece of that pie you know whatever whatever percentage of the sales that we can come up with and and i think it just they just they get so involved and so committed with that you know and so far it's working really great i hope it continues it's kind of you know the joel south and i think it's what fiefdoms and farmers or something like that and he kind of gave me that idea like you know let's let some of these younger people that are really energetic and and want to be a part of you know their own farm someday if they can't do it now then maybe we can kind of help them start it out and you know, it just kind of works. We've got so much land base, you know, and um, I, I, I can't do it all. There's no way. Um, all the different enterprises that we run here, I need all these people. And um, so, yeah, it's, it, I really like that part of it. We're going to continue to expand that. I know um, one of the guys is going to, I'm getting rid of all my hens and he's going to take over the egg production side. Cause I'm, I'm definitely uh, tired of my hens. So I'm going to let him have that. Great. So, um, so you've got, you've got the vegetables, you've got the, the hens, what other, what other enterprises are you, well, let me, let me say that again. You've got the vegetables, you've got the hens, uh, you've got the bedding plants. What other enterprises do you have going on on the farm? So we, we do about, how uh, we did 35 hogs last year that we finished. Um, and I just, uh, just purchased my, so my, so like the story goes, 70 years ago, my grandpa drove up to the middle of Wisconsin and bought his first two Red Bull cows and put them in the back of a pickup truck and drove them home. Um, and this is, I just bought the descendants of that herd from my dad. Um, there's only five cows left, you know, it's going to be kind of this long-term project of just kind of keeping that in the family and growing it back kind of to what it was. Um, so that's another smaller enterprise, obviously, but when I'm pretty excited to have uh continue it'll be the third generation in that uh, of our family that's that's owned those cows so that's that's a pretty cool uh pretty cool part we've added you know and i think i don't know it i i've kind of 
thrown this huge net out, I feel like, over the last, you know, the first five years for sure of just trying to figure out that we've done some grains and, and done all these, you know, all these different meats. We've done broilers and, and I just keep now I just keep kind of eliminating those things and seeing what what path we need to take and what what way the market leads us. So um, and now we're finally, you know, got to narrow down to. You know, our restaurants are half our business. Our CSA is about 30% and the market's 20. But within that, it gives us a lot of opportunity to sell all these different products. So, you know, when I have employees or somebody that works for us that wants to try something, then um, I'm game to try it out generally. So, and the restaurants that you're going to, those are primarily down in Indianapolis? Yeah, right. I th- we do have a couple in Lafayette, but... Um, you know, ninety percent of it's going up to Indianapolis. I have to say, when I when I think of Indianapolis, I don't go, "Oh, food scene." Yeah, I know, right? But it, but it's uh, it's really pretty incredible. It's the, the last few years, it's just really taken off, and there's a lot of people doing some pretty incredible things. That I was lucky enough to get hooked up. I, I'd been trying when when 2013 when we started up here at the farm. I, I I really I went for broke, you know, and I planted a lot more than I knew what we were going to do with. We, at the time, we were just we were doing three Saturday markets and in our CSA, and you know, I just I needed another outlet, but I wasn't, you know, I didn't know anything about the indie food scene either. You know, I'm I'm out in the middle of the country. That's not that wasn't my um that wasn't my thing. And but I had a lot of urban farmer friends that were up there, and I knew they were selling to restaurants, and I just kept on them. And finally, one of the guys one day gave he said calls me. He's like, hey, this guy. Um, you know, they've got like 10 restaurants. He buys tons of local food. He's looking for some stuff. Um, I'm going to give him your number. He's going to send you a text. He doesn't really like talking on the phone. I said, whatever, that's fine, you know. So it, this guy texts me and says, hey, I, you know, introduce ourselves. What do you have? And so I text him, you know, same list back. And he said, okay, great. I'll take everything you got. How much do you have of this stuff as well? Uh, it was like 300 pounds of beets, a couple hundred dozen corn, and, and a couple other things. And all of a sudden, he calls me real quick. He's like, man, I it, I haven't uh, been able to take everything on somebody's list for so long. He said, what's going on? And that was my introduction to this this guy. That's um, His name's Tyler Harold. He's this, the, the executive chef for um, a company called Patichu. And they have, they have 10 restaurants in Indy. And they're just flat out committed to local food. I mean, he's, he's pissed if he has to buy it from Cisco, you know. Um, and we really hit it off, and and he's he's just been. They've added a new restaurant almost every year since we've been with them, and I, I think I've, they're they're adding a few more here in the next coming year. So it's a growing. It's definitely a growing food scene. It's taken a long time. I think our biggest problem now is is more of a supply problem than it is the demand as far as the uh, the restaurant scene there. So that's a pretty good problem for me to have, you know. Right, right, and it sounds like the kinds of crops that you're growing. I mean, it's not not just strictly specialty stuff, but some pretty normal meat and potatoes kinds of things. Yeah. I think uh, I've kind of, you know, you kind of figure out what, what my role can be because like, I think a lot of the, like I said, a lot of the supply going into them was urban farmers or, or smaller scale, you know, that acre or two or five acres, uh, a scale where they're going to really concentrate on greens and, and microgreens and that high, higher value stuff, which we do too. But, but there's also, they use a lot of beets. They want potatoes. They want, you know, the, the, the one, the one guy, he uses 700 pounds of heirlooms a week. I mean, you have to have some production to be able to supply um, that kind of demand. And that's, so we do a lot of roots and, and obviously the tomatoes and, and, and we've been able to fill some of those gaps and, and are continuing to expand that root, root crop production and, and some of those other bigger items. Um, you know, we still do the arugula and salad mix and, and stuff like that, but it's um, definitely our niche is um, 
some of the bigger, you know, maybe it takes a little more space to grow them, but we have that space available and I've got the equipment now um, to manage those situations. So. so tell me about the kinds of equipment you're using to manage those situations. Are you mechanically harvesting crops like your roots? Uh, we will be. We just picked up an Ocelift um, beet uh, root crop harvester this last winter. So this year um, we're really expanding the carrot and beet production and you know some parsnips and some other things so we can so we can mechanically harvest out you know of course we got the potato digger and um, that can mechanically do that and this we had never this last winter was the um and i turned 40 and it was it was one of those moments where i we'd finally built ourselves back up as far as credit and and all these other things and and i knew i, I felt like there was a lot of opportunity in the marketplace but i, I really you know, I've been just kind of scrapping by to get equipment put together as I go. And, and, um, it, it really, to me, I feel like the system, the, the whole system is what makes me efficient. And I wasn't able to really get the, the benefit of the whole system until I was able to purchase it. And so we, we made a lot of equipment purchases this last, this last year. And, and I, the first time borrowed money for the farm, um, to do that. So yeah, there's a lot of new pieces this year that are, um, that we're excited to use. And, you know, of course it, it kind of brings a whole new, um, you have to have the production now, you know, so it does definitely change from, from being able to do it all just kind of without having to worry about that debt. But, um, I think it's, I think it's worthwhile. I hope so. We're excited about it. (laughs) And I know one of the things that really threw me for a loop when we started doing, like when we started mechanizing on my farm was, was how, how much like everything had to fit together. You know, it was like all of a sudden you had to get every step, right. You can't use that as a lift, root harvester if you've got a really weedy crop of beets it's got to be pretty clean right you know right and and you know the rows have to be straight and perfectly spaced if you're going to do the mechanical cultivation of what have you learned in the process of of kind of putting this new system together yeah and i think that like the definitely one of you know one of the first things i bought and this was back on the other farm was a was a g you know i wanted a cultivator but i, I learned very quickly that having you know, having an earthway cedar trying to walk up and down a row and come back and cultivate it with a g doesn't do any good you know and then and obviously having the g with a with a set of shovels is not like having a G with the six different implements that go under it. And so you're right. I mean, it was the, the total system of, you know, and I had to simplify a little bit. So we have, um, and we just, we went to six foot row centers and we do a three, two, one, um, raised bed system. So it's either three rows, two rows or one, um, other yep. than our salad mix and, and every, you know, it's all three point mounted, um, cedars so that we have perfect rows and we have, you know, two or th- what, three different transplanters. So everything's transplanted, Exactly. And, and we've got a bed flamer and tine weeders and basket weeders. And, you know, so it's, it is, it's that system. If you're going to mechanize and get to that scale and production efficiency, it's, it's taken me a lot of years to get there, but I finally, uh, I feel like we're, we're finally got a lot of those pieces together and, you know, it's, you know, we kind of, I, I've not changed my acreage very much over the years, but my production is just, uh, it just continues to rise. And I think that's where we keep concentrating. I think, you know, I can see maybe it's getting to 30 acres over the next few years, but I don't see needing or wanting more than that. You know, it's just really increasing our productive efficiency. Right. Because yeah, if you can harvest twice as much off of the same piece of ground, why not do it? Yeah. And we definitely are compared to those early years. You know, it's just ridiculous what, uh, what I'd go through trying to figure out, um, how to do this stuff, you know, that I didn't go learn it somewhere was just silly, but, that's how it is you know now you mentioned that you're doing a lot of heirlooms i mean 700 pounds a week to one account are you grafting those plants can you tell us a little bit about how that 
that process is working? Yeah, we had the last few years we've been graphing this year. I did not. Um, I've had, I don't know, mixed results and, and mixed um, emotions about, about grafting. We haven't had, you know, part of it, we haven't had tomato production on this farm and in these tunnels for long enough to have a soil borne problem. So it's not, I was trying to get more of a, um, a longer harvest period. We've, we've, we've actually, even especially last year, we had white mold, which, which grafting does nothing for. And then um, my success rate always in the beginning of the season when I wanted it the worst was, was pretty bad. And then by the time I, you know, I grafted through everything. I got pretty good at it by the end of the season. And it was like, I started over every year. Um, so, and, and <laughs> yeah, and, and we, the, the newer, there's those, there's those three new varieties from Johnny's, the, there's a Marnero and Margold and Marglobe, which are kind of a, a French ver- hybrid version of an heirloom, kind of like Cherokee purple and striped German. I, I found we're really productive without grafting and saved us a lot of money and time and, and really the biggest reason this year we were, we were building that new seedling house. And so we were in such transition. I knew that I wasn't going to be able to manage those grafts. Right. Um, so we just went without grafting and we'll see how it goes. Um, but I, I would imagine we'll go back to it again. I, there's, there's definitely some, I saw some benefit, but I, like I said, I just, I didn't feel like there was enough benefit to it when you buy those extra expensive root, rootstock seeds and you're putting the, you know, the really expensive hybrid, uh, um, tops, scion tops on them. I just, uh, it didn't work out for me. So yeah, we, we went back to, um, just standard, standard tomatoes without grafting this year. You mentioned with the greens production that you're not doing that on your three, two, one system. Are you solid seeding those beds? Yeah, we've, we've got the, the Jang, um, I kind of went back and forth between the Sutton Cedar and the Jang. There's a Jang um, solid wide uh, wide bed planter. It's got 12 lines on a 36 inch wide, uh, basically solid roller in front and back. So we'll do solid seeding with that. Okay. And then are you harvesting that by hand still? Yeah, I was I was on the edge of buying a harvester this winter, and I just when I look at the market and I look at my you know my competition in that market and and um, I just don't know. I, I just decided to, you know, the, the, we use the quick cut greens harvesters. I buy a couple new ones every year after I tear them up. Um, and for us, you know, we're doing maybe 700 pounds a week, 800 pounds a week of greens. And until we figure out a, a really good wash line, I don't know that I want to push that much further. And I really don't know where I'd go with it at this point. It's not, there's just not a really, I mean, there's, you know, the 700 or 800 pounds is great, but I don't feel like I have much more market than that right now. So, I, yeah, we're, we'll stick with a quick cut greens harvester, and um, and it's working for the time being. And, I, you know, we, we've expanded our head production. We've got a really – and that's so easy to go cut, you know, four or 500 heads real quick. is is a whole lot different than hand-cutting salad mix, you know? Yeah, a little harder to do in July, though. Right, yeah, that's that's the challenge for sure. So with the with your green setup, what are you doing for weed control in that solid set bed? So we'll stale bed and then uh, then seed into that stale bed after I've, I've run the tine weeder over it a few times, and then uh, I'll bed fl- I'll irrigate it after I've seeded and bed flame that following day. I've got a, a, a full bed flamer, three point mounted flamer, and that helps a lot. That definitely makes a big difference. You mentioned the irrig- irrigation a couple of times as we've been talking. I mean, that seems like something that that you place a lot of importance on on your farm. Yeah, we didn't have it in Darlington, and in 2012 we didn't really have. It. I mean, we had you know some garden hoses and and some stuff like that, but it was um, thankfully in 2012 I, I I'd already put the well. The well was the first thing I did when we when we put the foundation and moved the house. So I had the well up here, and we actually 
made a decision real quick to put our winter squash up here by this well, which is a, a 200 gallon a minute well. Um, so we got a lot of water up here and, and that, it just made a huge difference. And, and we were able to finally, uh, last spring got our main, main headlines on this 40 acres done. Um, we still got it now it's, you know, putting it in on the other side, but it, it, yeah, it's huge. It's definitely made the difference in having a crop and having really high quality crop compared to obviously lower quality and less yields. Do you guys have a process that you're using for, I mean, on 25 acres is it's a lot of vegetables for monitoring your irrigation. I mean, with 200 gallons a minute, you know, you could be putting on a lot of water if you wanted to. Right. Yeah. And I wish I could say it was more scientific than what it is. Other than I just water what needs to be watered. We're still, um, we do a lot of drip tape. We do, we do plastic culture on, um, tomatoes, peppers, cucurbits, and onions. Everything else is, is raised bed bare ground. Um, we do have our shaper will, will bury drip tape, you know, four inches so we can still, do our you know our top top layer of cultivation with that drip tape under um, but then i also have a water reel that, that we use to irrigate with so all my all my beds are set up in eight bed blocks which are 50 feet and that the irrigation reel will shoot about 120 so i've got these sod strips in between my my blocks that i can pull it out water two two blocks at a time same with my my sprayer is a 25 foot boom so i can drive around a single boom so i can drive around the edges of the field you know and spray over the top of sweet corn or tomatoes or whatever um or cucurbits without having to get in the field so we set all that those blocks up um to kind of coincide with how we irrigate but yeah the the monitoring part uh, i'm just not that scientific other than if I just planted it, I need to water it. If it, if it looks dry, we go at it. And and really, in the heat of the summer, it's it's hard for me to get across the whole farm in a week. It's everything I can do to cover the whole place in a week. So it's definitely a little bit of a downfall. Um, we need a little bit bigger pump on the well to to keep up. We so we could use another uh, water reel would help. So Nate, um, when we were talking, you mentioned that you felt like you're getting better at weed control. Uh, can you give us an idea of like what your systems are for weed control and and what's getting better about them? Yeah, you know, I think timing is is so critical, you know, and and learning that timing and understanding um, when it has to be done, you got to get out there and get it get it accomplished, you know. And and, the, and the, obviously that thread stage is when you got to attack things. And and for us, you know, like I say, it's kind of different because we're we're mechanized, so it's just having the correct pieces at the right time and the right people on those equipment to get it done. Um, so first, I'll, I'll generally, I'll make my beds um, a solid month ahead so I know that all my beds are made up and ready. And that way I can I can stale bed those two or three times really before I ha- even have to plant. And in, and even at a lot of this year especially, we had the wettest April on record. So getting the beds made was, was just a horrible challenge. But then at least we had the bed tops were dried. But I couldn't get in and cultivate. I mean, you were mudding through the, the tire tracks, but I was able to even – when, with those bed tops made, we'd go in and flame and plant right into it. And, and that's definitely, it's just making a huge difference to be able to stay on top of things in that way. And then using the Laley Tine Weeder, um, we got uh, the Williams Toolbar and Laley Tine Weeder. I really, uh, really like it a lot to be able to get the inner row weeds out. Um, generally, don't have to hoe very much of our, our two or three row stuff with between the G and the three point stuff that we have. We can, uh, as long as you're staying on top of it, yeah, you know, it's not, it's not too big of a problem. That Williams weeder, weeder system, that's that, it's kind of a tying weeder, but then you can also mount 
uh, sweeps and, and knives on it. It goes behind your tractor, right? That's right. Yeah, it's a three-point mounted system. So it's got a, a diamond bar in front where we can put side sweeps. Um, and then we put spider wheels on the edges to kind of hug the edge of the bed. And it really just kind of self-guides us through. And, and then we've got a, a side dresser mounted on top so I can... You know, I can side dress and run sweeps and, and run the tines through there all at one pass. And um, I think does what really, I'd say this year especially, it's been maybe eight days, ten days after transplant, I can go right over the top of them where you still have a pretty nice uh, soil structure and really break it up and those transplants just hold up perfectly, you know, and you really get a, a good clean rake on the bed. Right. And if you can get a little bit of hilling at that, you know, seven or eight days in on those transplants, you can, I mean, you can really set the weeds back significantly. Yeah, it's it, you can for sure. And like I said, I think, you know, early on, I just, oh, uh, they're tiny. I don't need to worry about them right now, but they go from tiny to, to uncontrollable in a heartbeat and, and a tiny weed can be buried and, and covered up uh, in no time, you know, compared to, you know, even just when you can see a sea green out there is really a, you're, you're coming into a problem time, you know? Yeah. Well, and of course you never know when it's just going to turn around and rain again and you're going to be kicked out of the field for a week and then, you know, all your best intentions go to hell in a handbasket under those circumstances. Yeah. I mean, and that just, that's the reality of how, how the seasons go anymore. It seems like, you know, there's standard normal weather conditions are just, that's not a reality. So you've got to be, be prepared and be able to attack a situation right in front of you. And I really hate weeds. I just, I don't like them. <laughs> it just really bothers me to see a weedy field. A, it's ugly, and B, it's it's a huge source of inefficiency. Yeah, yeah. I haven't got a good market for weeds yet, but I guess if I do, maybe I'll change my strategies. <laughs> you know, net, n- nettles were, were one of our most profitable crops, and we didn't sell very many of them, but boy, did we make a lot of money on <laughs> that's them. That's right, yeah. <laughs> hey, so um, you mentioned that you have staff that's actually out there doing that cultivating. I imagine, I mean, with everything you've got going on, you're not the primary tractor driver on your farm. And, and I, I guess I did say that, but and actually, I do have one guy that does um, some tractor work, but unfortunately right now he's hiking the Appalachian Trail. He's supposed to be back in two weeks. So I've actually... Other than driving the transplant, all the field work is uh, is on me right now. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, which is I'm, – I'm ready for Brian to be back. <laughs> it'll, it'll help me a lot just giving me another guy out there because it, it's definitely um, – it's, it's, it's been one of my biggest challenges trying to train people to – and maybe it's just because I'm obsessive a little bit about um, some of the things we do in the field and, and how I want it set up. But I just haven't had a lot of luck with that part. Um, you know, everything else on the farm is, I've got such great people in, in charge of, um, my biggest issue now is, is another equipment operator and that, that understands you don't just go cultivate. You have to move those shoes and, and change pitches and angles and make sure you're doing a, a quality job. It's not enough to just drive over the row. You know, that's not, that's not the goal. The goal is to not come back with a hoe, you know, and that takes, that takes paying attention to how, how the equipment works and how the shovels are moving and what the soil conditions are like on that day, which may be different from the day before, you know, and it's, I don't know if it's just a, maybe a difficult thing to teach or a difficult thing for me to, you know, maybe to say to someone, I, I don't think, uh, maybe I'm not the best at it. So with that, Nate, I'd like to stop and take a break, get a word from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back. I want to talk about your marketing systems at your farm. Sounds good. 
Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, helping plants make sugar from sunshine since 1992. Through 23 years of producing the best potting soils you can buy, Vermont Compost Company founder and owner Carl Hammer has stayed intimately involved in the company, working with a small staff of committed individuals to provide compost-based potting soils chock full of microbial partners and humus-bound nutrients. The people at Vermont Compost Company have a practical understanding of the challenges organic growers face, and they combine that with the comprehensive of understanding of soil and plant science and an intuitive comprehension that often has Carl and his crew sticking their noses into a handful of compost and inhaling deeply as though they were sampling a fine brandy. Vermont compost is the real thing, built on consistency instead of glitz. Like the donkey on their logo, Vermont compost potting soils aren't glitzy or glamorous. They're steadfast and consistent, stubbornly making certain that your transplants can get everything they need from a few cubic centimeters of soil. Oh, by the way, the donkeys are the real thing, and you get a little bit of donkey manure in every batch of Vermont Compost potting soil. Feed your plants the best. VermontCompost.com This episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Growing for Market magazine. I first ran into Growing for Market in 1993 while working at Wisconsin's Harmony Valley Farm, and I've been a subscriber ever since. At Harmony Valley Farm, I learned that information is the number one coin of our realm, and it provides an almost infinite return on investment. Then, as now, there were a lot of farming magazines out there. There were also a lot of gardening magazines, but other than Growing for Market, there were no other market farming magazines available. And I have to say, I've learned something from every issue over the past 23 years. Growing for Market was founded by a farmer with the idea of fostering the exchange of news and ideas about market farming among market farmers themselves. In fact, Growing for Market was one of the inspirations for the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Available by mail or online, Growing for Market also offers options to access the archive of everything published from 2001 to the present, an invaluable, searchable record. Reference. Subscribe today at growingformarket.com. And we're back with Nate Parks from Silverthorne Farm in Indiana. Nate, I wanted to ask on that 20 acres of vegetables that you've got, what are your gross sales looking like on that? Yeah, so last year, and yeah, we were, uh, eight, if you go exactly, it was like 18, but we were just shy of 400,000 last year. That's substantial business. I think so. I feel good about it. It's not 100,000 an acre like, uh, like you hear, but I still, you know, we're making strides and uh, continuing to improve, and, and I think we'll. You know, I, I think 500 is, is coming really quick. I wanted to ask about how your restaurant sales works. And so you said that's about 50% of your business. That's a really important part of what you're doing. And a lot of times you find folks doing like, you know, lots of farmer's market or lots of CSA and then some restaurants. You kind of flip that on its head. Yeah. And, and really 2013 was the first year we did it. And you're talking, you know, maybe it was 15% of our business in 2013. Um and then just as it just it's just exploded and it's just one of those reacting to to the to the market and and kind of to go along with it is our farmers markets the original ones we started at we're not, we're not in any longer and they just started falling on their face and we were bringing so much product home we were producing a lot more product and, and we just couldn't sell it we just couldn't move it we were having you know our CSA is always you know 150 Last year we were 275, and it was just I couldn't get any more out of it, and I, I just needed another option. And when we found those restaurants, it was just uh, I love it. I, I really enjoy that part of it, and uh, yeah, it's just been really good for us. So just kind of letting letting the the market demand lead me in the direction that, that we go, and and that's kind of been it. Can you tell me a little bit about how that the logistics work with the restaurants? Yeah, you know. 
we, when we started, obviously the majority of our product was going was was grown for our CSA and for our, our markets. So I had all this, all these different varieties of crops, you know, that, that we would typically have for market and CSA. So I just kind of threw it in and, and filled in with those guys. And, and over the years, we've just had a few of the different products, especially the heirlooms, t- tomatoes and cherries and strawberries and um, some of our head lettuces and, and the beets, carrots, potatoes, sweet potatoes those type of things that that we had a really solid demand for and things that we could do you know a lot a big part of the year um and so we've just kind of narrowed it down to that's what we you know if i'm going to grow an excess of anything it's going to it's going to be those products that i know are, are kind of staples for the restaurants um salad mix is kind of is one of those but arugula is, is the definitely the hot one right now that we're that we that we kind of lean heavier on in the summer production and spinach in the winter um, so, so yeah, logistically, I'd love to say we have all these contracts with everybody, but it's more relationships and, and just kind of past sales records and kind of thinking about, you know, a lot of times the guys will do their menu plannings and we'll, we'll have some communication there. And like, you know, if, if there's something that they want to feature, or have a little more of this year or next, we, we have those, those talks and, and I just kind of amp up that production a little bit to meet their demands. And how many restaurants are you guys delivering to in order to get you know, I mean, it's about $200,000 worth of sales. Yeah, it's 15 or so, 15 on a regular basis. You know, there's probably 20 or 25 different restaurants and little natural food stores and things like that. Um, but but literally 75% of our restaurant sales go to that one company, that Patichu company. Um, they're just, it's just incredible the amount of product they, they take and that they blow through. And is that something where you're putting, where you're delivering to each of the restaurants that they've got, or are they actually handling that final stage of distribution for you? No, we, we do. Um, I think it was another one of the things that we were able to do. We have a refrigerated truck and we're, our CSA route really kind of goes through Indianapolis uh, and we have a driver that, that, that takes care of that. So it was one of those to make it easier for them. I'm just going to, I'm going to deliver it on my way through. And then, um, and so, yeah, we, we delivered all the restaurants. The, the one restaurant company does have a, what, what they call a production kitchen where, um, you know, they'll take some of the bulk items and, and do their processing there before they send it out to the restaurants. But generally speaking, we're going to we, we make a drop at, at all the different locations. How many deliveries a week are you making? Are you guys two times a week? Twice a week to the restaurants. Yep. And then we do, we do have, well, I guess, three, three days a week. But to, um, most of the restaurants are going to get two deliveries a week. Okay. Okay. And how does your order cycle work with the restaurants? Are, are people ordering and, and getting product on the same day or what, what kind of lead time and how are you communicating about what you've got available? Everything's text. I te- so I'll send a text out on uh, Monday morning uh, of what I've got available for the week to, to everybody. And I, and I need to have that. I, I need their responses back by, by first thing Tuesday and we'll, 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 we'll harvest Tuesday for a Wednesday delivery. And I do the same thing on Thursday. I'll send out a list again Thursday. I want it by Friday morning and deliver Saturday. Is there a tool that you're using for texting that many people all at once? Well, that'd be a great idea, wouldn't it? <laughs> it's just my iPhone, you know, it's, and, and, and you know, I can copy and paste my, my list to, to all the different groups. You know, a lot of the, there are several of our restaurants have groups of rest of chefs that, you know, they'll have multiple locations. So, um, you know, a lot of my group texts I can send out, you know, where there's, 
you know, maybe five chefs that are with the same company. So I can just send a group to all five of those guys or girls or whatever. And, and they can, they can text me back individually as they come back in. I, you know, we have our big whiteboard in the, in the pack shed that has individual categories and coded for each, each restaurant. And so I'll, I'll put those on the board as they come in. So you're really the kind of the gatekeeper for that whole ordering system. Right. Right. Cause you're the guy with the cell phone. Right. That's right. Yeah. So with the restaurants, are you doing standard packs? I mean, when you're when you're dealing with this kind of volume, or are you are you custom packing? Somebody order seventeen bunches of Swiss chard, or do you only pack that at a twenty four count? No, you know, I let them do whatever they want, um, and I know there's there's a lot of inefficiencies with that, but it just the overall um, volume that I'm able to move that way, and I'm already, you know, I, I generally most of my restaurants are going to have a main crop that they come to me for that that's going to be the bulk item, you know, whether it's the tomatoes or the greens or, or what have you. And then I'm already going there. So order, you know, if you need to, you know, if you need five pounds of kale, go ahead and order five pounds of kale. I'll, I'll bring it in. I'm not going to bunch the kale in the chart and stuff like that. I'll just, I'll bag it and put it in wax boxes and bring it in. But yeah, I don't have order quantity limits or, or requirements that they have to do. Right. And you felt like that's, that's helped in your relationship with the restaurants. Yeah, for sure. You know, and I, I, you know, we're packing so many different ways already and, and it's already, um, you know, it's just, it's just one of those things that fits into our system pretty easily. Our CSA is crazy enough that, um, we're used to packing up, um, different items like that. Well, and so I was, I was just thinking that this would be a good spot to pivot uh, and talk about the CSA because, you do these custom packs for the restaurants. You turn around and do the same thing for the CSA. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, uh, so this is uh, I think this is our seventh year with our CSA. In the first year, I did the typical CSA um, where you got a box of what was fresh every week for for the twenty weeks or twenty five or whatever it may be. And and I personally just I hated it. I'm one of those pleaser people. You know, I've got that disease, and I just I worried the entire time if people were happy or not happy. And at the time. There was a lot of CSAs, or, or not a lot, but there was there was a lot of pretty good CSAs in our area already selling, and I and I loved those guys. They were great farmers and had a lot of respect for everybody. So you know what what am I selling, and, and how am I selling against them? And um, you know, I didn't feel like I had a really great argument as to why you shouldn't buy from him and buy from me. Um, so we kind of started exploring the market style CSA, and it's certainly taken a lot of turns over the years. Um, Small Farm Central has helped a lot in how we do it now, where where everything's online. Um, <clears throat> so so now it's it is it's it's completely custom. We deliver forty weeks out of the year, um, and as as opposed to so so now so previously the last I'd say the last four years they would they would buy a share and they would have an account balance on our website. And I, I open my e-commerce page, which I still do on Sunday mornings. They can go through, place their order of all the items that I place on there, you know, and the quantities that I put on. So I still have control over what they're ordering. And I just would deduct automatically out of their account balance throughout the season until they're out of out of cash. And and so then, yeah, so then you'll have, you know, 250 different orders to pack and, and we just print those reports off. It's actually, it's not as bad as it sounds because we do have a master list of, of the exact individual items that we need to have. And then each location will have, you know, a, a, an overall list so we can break it out that way. And then each individual item, each individual order has its item list. So it definitely, you know, it's not an assembly line pack. Packing definitely takes us much longer than probably a, a typical CSA would. But it, but it, it works for us and we're, we're used to it now um, after these years. 
of doing it uh, now this year the, the one of the problems I, I ran into with that system is you take the value off of the farm and put the value i think on the on the item so it was definitely you know right. if somebody ordered six ears of corn and they got five we'd be getting emails that can you give me a 35 cent credit and i had five ears of corn and i just i got just i'm just done with it you know i just it, it's totally missing the point and and we had put we had drove people into that situation you know because it was it was literally they had this value on the item and they weren't motivated to to spend their money. So we, you know, even though we had 250, 300 people with credit, um, we would see a drop down to 30, 40 percent order rates. You know, where we're wow, yeah. And, and how do you prepare for that? Because you really, if you're going to post something on that for the CSA to order, you need to have you need to make sure that you have the quantity available for them to order it. But if you're if your ordering drops in the 30, 40 percent range, it's just it just really screwed up my planning and. Um, and I was just, it just, it just wasn't working anymore. You know, it, it had kind of lost some of the what I'd felt was um, was great about CSA, and and not to say that everybody was that way, but we definitely, you know, the the new people that we would get in, or the the people who thought it was a great New Year's resolution to to have a CSA, you know, they just didn't stick with it, just like you do with a when you join a gym for right. New Year's Eve. You know, it was just it was kind of that same mentality I felt like. So this year we changed it. I actually, I didn't. And so the other thing that happened was instead of like a half share, full share, which we had done for a while, last year we went to this, it was two, four, six, or $800 that you could buy in. And the more you bought in, you kind of got a little bit more percentage of money added to your account. Um, thinking these people are going to go for eight, six, 800 bucks. It's going to get my, my average share price up. Um, it's going to be great. And what happens is everybody goes on 200 bucks, which they didn't get any extra credit for, but they didn't really care about. So it, it just tanked our average share price. Right. And with the way we do it, it was just, we just have, you know, it's 30% of our income and it was like 60% of our labor, you know, dealing with all this um, crazy pack and it just, it just wasn't working. So I basically this year, our share of more or less doubled in price. And they, and they're, if you're a married couple, it's $80 a month. If you're single, it's $40 a month. Do you sign up for a month at a time? Nope. You have to sign a 12 month commitment and that's for 40 weeks of deliveries. So, okay. so you're going to, you're going to pay 52 weeks out of the year and get 40 weeks worth of delivery, which is like a $26 a week average is what they're paying. And per person, per membership. Okay. Yep. Per, and, and basically I came up with that number. Uh, you know, the, the great thing about doing, doing the system that we, that we do now is after five years, I know exactly what everybody wants to order. You know, I have these records of, of every order that's ever been placed over the last five years. So I know exactly what they're ordering. I know the percentages of people that are going to order the first time I premiere a crop compared to two, three, four, five weeks later, you know, and how, how that the ebb and flow of, you know, people get tired of certain certain items. Just like, you know, the first tomato is incredible and the one in October you can't give away. Um, right. And, and so I had all those numbers and all those figures and, and about $25, $26 a week is, is what a um, is what they were basically spending. Um, so I, that's what we did. And, and what, it, what it did was uh, we, we cut our membership down to 200. I limited it at 200 as opposed to 275, but it raised our income 60,000 from, from the year before. It really, it almost doubled our um, share value, which was what I was really trying to go for. And the other thing, 
it's done, you know, that we started that in September uh, was when we started taking new for the new membership. And, and our our percentages of weekly orders are in that consistently 75, 85 percent range, which is it's not 100 percent, which is which is OK. But it's just so much more easy, much easier for me to deal with and, and understand um, what I need to be prepared for. And we've, we've and so, had some problems where, you know, they can order basically. And so now when I, when I post it on our, our e-commerce page, there's no prices associated with anything. You just get what you need for the week and we're going to deliver it. You just pay me a monthly fee. And, and so, so the crazy risk of that is you could order, you know, you could order a hundred pounds of whatever you wanted every week and, and really blow it out. Um, but I, but I had this feeling that that's not the, the kind of people who are joining our CSA and that we'd be okay. And, and, you know, we can reassess at the end of the year and change the price. Uh, accordingly to to the averages this year of what people were ordering. And if now you've just started that this year, have people been pretty happy? Yeah, you know, we had huge pushback and the 75 members that didn't come back, you know, we were just way too expensive and they, they would never pay that much for it. And the people that are in it say, this is incredible. Are you sure this is enough? You know, so, and that's what we wanted. We just, we needed to do that. We needed to purge the system and kind of, you know, that firing of the bottom, bottom part of that CSA that just didn't get it, you know, that just weren't and weren't in it for, um, you know, they ran it for the, the cheap dollar and as opposed to really what we're trying to accomplish on the whole farm. So yeah, the the ones who've stuck with it and are, and are stayed with us is uh, are really excited, you know, and and I am too, and I think it's going to be you know so far so good. We've had a few issues. We have, you know, we had we had one lady that was definitely getting carried away. We had to we had to call and say, listen, you're gonna have to buy two more shares if, if this continues. She the uh, she had literally we were only doing two every other week delivery, and she had forty heads of lettuce, ten pounds of arugula, and five pounds of salad mix, and three dozen eggs I'm like, you just wow. you know, like well, that's just not gonna work <laughs> this just, right. doesn't make any sense i mean what are you doing with 40 heads of lettuce you know um but that was you know that was rare what kind of response did you get from her uh, it was you know it's it's that classic oh i had no idea you know i didn't know what it was i just i figured out we could get whatever we wanted i said yeah but i mean let's use a little common sense with us you know and yeah it's it's that classic um I think I think it was a kind of that situation where we just don't understand the value of some of the products. But yeah, that, that's the only issue we've really had, and, and that's been fixed. And you know, I think the, the reality is, in, in the winter months, you know, when we're well, we've got to give them this spinach and kale and some root crops. You know, may, they, may, they may not be hitting that twenty five, twenty six dollars a week. And in the summer, you know, there's going to be some fifty dollar orders. And and what we're, we'll just we'll see at the end of the year how that all pans out and. If the average needs to go up and the fee goes up, then that's great. But but it definitely has moved uh, the the mentality of our CSA into a much more supportive of the whole farm system as opposed to each item. Do you guys do a newsletter as well? Yep, every week. Oh, yep. So people are keeping in touch with everybody with what's going on on the farm. Yep. So every that, that's kind of the they know the store is open when they get my newsletter on Sunday morning. Who's doing the administration on the CSA? Because I mean, taking those orders, getting stuff collated, figuring out, making sure you've got enough kale to fill all the kale orders for the CSA, and and I guess for the restaurants too. I mean, how are you guys handling those those kinds of uh, logistical issues? Yeah, and, and so definitely. So I always Sunday morning is my crop walk. Um, every week, you know, and I'll walk the farm and, and get a feel for what we have. And obviously that a lot of that's experience and just understanding, um, you know, how much is out in a bed and, and how much we have available and what I think will be ready and, and what needs to wait. Um, 
and so so that's what i'll post that those items um kind of according to what i feel is going to be ready you know like strawberries i knew we had a great harvest this morning but it wasn't going to be ready for wednesday thursday delivery so you know you want to put it on there and give them that first dis but it just uh you know we just i knew i had to wait or we're going to have a lot of disappointed people when we couldn't fill those orders <clears throat> so it's you know, I think that's just been, I've been bitten enough times when I've thought I had something and I didn't, uh, I'm probably a little more cautious now than I used to be. Um, but as far as, you know, keeping track of the orders coming in, the the small farm central program that they, they do for us, I can't say enough about Simon and Hugh and all those guys and all the work they've helped with us putting the, putting it together for us to manage it where I can just go in and literally print, print out a, a large report page that gives me, you know, the totals that I need of each item on that harvest day. Um, and then, um, and then the girls on, on the pack day really have taken that over the last couple of years and just they're spot on. And I'm putting, putting orders together and really knocking it out and putting a pretty good system together of, you know, breaking out those, those items for each delivery location and, and getting, getting them right. Because, you know, it's one of the other things is we have to really, those, those those boxes need to be packed according to what they order. You know, it's just definitely a lot different than just getting a box and being a surprise. There's an expectation that, that there's going to be something in there that they ordered. So um, it becomes really critical to make sure that everything's right. And, you know, generally it is. We always certainly have some issues every once in a while. Can you walk us through kind of step by step how those boxes are getting packed? Yeah. So, we'll, you know, at the beginning of the day, Again, we'll have the whiteboard with all the different crops that we're going to harvest for the day, and there'll be three categories. Um, the first category is the the items that we need for the CSA, and that has to be done no matter what. You have to find that amount of that product. The second category is going to be for the restaurants what they want, um, and our third outlets the market. And if we have if we have enough, this is what I want for the market. If we don't, that, that's where we cut it first. Um, so that's the beginning of the day, and, and we'll go harvest those items, bring them in, get everything washed, um, and and we'll pack out. You know, if we need 150 heads of romaine, well, for for CSA, and we've got 100 heads of romaine for for market. The, the market ones are going to get packed in, packed into boxes, labeled, put in the cooler. The the romaines are going to be put back into our harvest, you know, our black uh, bulb crates, and put in the separate cooler, ready for CSA pack. Um, so we'll go through the day with that, with all the different items, and generally, we'll we'll go in and, and the CSA stuff gets washed and pushed through quickly. Um, and the restaurant stuff will be kind of held back where um, a few of the girls will take off and grab the CSA stuff as soon as we get it all packed and, and I'll, I'll continue on the, the restaurant pack. And, and so then you have, you know, there's 15 different locations. Each location has a master list of the total items for that location. So we'll break that out of the total CSA. So if location A needs 10 heads of romaine, we'll, we'll make sure we have that exact number of, of each of the different items and then we'll pack that whole location. That way, when you're done, you should have no items left. You know, if there's an item left, then you know you have a problem. You can go back through those 15 or 20 boxes and, and double-check, make sure you're good. And we do that for each location. You know, we just make sure we have the exact number that we need for that exact location. And, and then, then it's a lot easier to go back and find a mistake. If, if you're at the end and you don't have enough or you have too much, you know that there's a problem somewhere. And then do you have like a piece of paper for each box that says, you know, okay, so, you know, Joe and Susan Smith, they need... That's right. They need these items. Okay. Yep. So each location will have a master list. And then 
below that list is an itemized, uh, there, there'll be a, the customer name, delivery location, and what items they'd order for that location um, for each each customer on that on that site. The the biggest the biggest snafu we have in our whole system right now is I, I really want to be able to figure out a way to print those orders out on a sticker that can just be slapped on a box, sent down a line, and we can pack it that way. That that that's the next level of that we've got to get to to really help our efficiency because definitely reading those labels then you know writing on um duct tape or something else that we put a name or location on the front of the box is just <clears throat> that's a big uh that's a big problem in our in our pack line and i think if we can just get to uh, figure out a way to export those orders into a situation that, that just prints out onto a label that that's that's our next uh it's the big efficiency that we need to figure out a way to do and then you're labeling each of those boxes then of course because You've got to have a label that's printed up that says, hey, this one is the one that's going to Joe and Susan Smith. That's right. Yep, that's right. And then so people are obviously when they, you know, at pickup sites, do you guys have trouble with folks picking up the wrong box? Not generally. We did have one last week where a lady came to to pick up and somebody had already got it out of her box and broke it down, which is really one of the first times I've ever heard of that. We don't generally have that kind of a problem. So um, I think, you know, everybody's, you know, the first, this first month of when we really start kind of getting back into it of every day and, and some of the new members kind of come on and really start to order, we have, we'll have some issues where, you know, they didn't find a box right or didn't pull it back and put it away or didn't understand their confirmation or something like that. Um, but generally, um, once we get into the system, it works pretty good. With the CSA, what kinds of pickup locations do you guys have? You're you're delivering those, but not doing door to door, right? No, that's right. They're they're centralized locations, and and a, a pretty broad mix. We've we've got um, a, a chapel and some churches. Um, we do have a couple of uh, natural food stores that we use, and a butcher shop, and maybe one or two homes. So it's it's a whole broad mix of of places that we deliver to. And um, and what about your family, Nate? I mean, we we touched on a little bit, you know, how how Emily was involved in the story. Is she involved in the farm? You know, it more and more so now. Uh, and trying, she's kind of finding her her spot. And you know, the the reality is, this is definitely obviously my dream and what I've always wanted to do. I'm so excited about it. But she, it wasn't hers. And she she loves to clean dirt out of people's teeth. She's a dental hygienist, so she's as crazy as me. Um, but that's been her career and and what she's always loved to do. Um, we, we have, we do have three children now and we just had our third. So she's, she's slowed that down a lot. You know, she was the last few years, just a couple of days a week, um, working off the, out, out of the home and this, this year it's down to one and, and still questioning that. Um, but with the three kids, it's a, it's definitely a full-time job. And then she does handle all the emails and scheduling and, and bookkeeping and, and all the other stuff behind the scenes. She's just, uh, she's all over that and keeps me in line and, and, uh, slows me down when I want to speed up. So, you know, she's a huge part of the farm. She's not out in the fields or, or in the production side of it at all. You know, that's definitely uh, not where she's at. But as far as all the back-end stuff, I just, yeah, I couldn't even come close to managing it without her. So with that, Nate, I'd like to turn to the lightning round. Get you a few quick questions here. What's your favorite tool on the farm? <laughs> yeah, I always think about that every time I hear everybody answer. And it's, I am going to, I'll cheat a little bit and, and say that, uh, <laughs> Everybody cheats. I know. Well, that's the thing. I figure everybody else is cheating. I'm going to too. And it, th- this last year, when we were able to really put the system together that I've been kind of dreaming about having to, to manage the whole farm and having all those pieces together, it has just been it's been really. Uh, it's just been incredible to have all those pieces. You know, I'd hate to be without my G. I'd hate to be without the tine weeders and bed flamers and the 
and all these other things. But just the, having that whole system is uh, that that's just kind of integrated together and works together. It's just it's been incredible. But uh, you know, the I think the one tool that, that kind of changed all those systems was the we did get a 105 horsepower tractor, and that that helped me get some bigger bigger equipment. And that's that's really that's been pretty pretty key this year to, to get some stuff done. So, um, but you know, I haven't used the the, the lift yet, so maybe that'll be my favorite tool here in a, another month or so. I think you're going to like that. Yeah, I think yeah. so too. It looks, it looks a little scary, but we'll figure it out surely by the end of the year. All right. And do you have a favorite crop to grow? Yeah, I love tomatoes. You know, it's no surprise, I guess, but I, I do love to grow the tomatoes. It was, it's one of those things that uh, growing up, my, my mom and dad both hated tomatoes. So in our garden at home, we never had them. I didn't really discover a real tomato till I was really till I started this when I was 30 years old. And I just, I love tomatoes to eat them and, and to grow them is just pretty fascinating to when we're, we're single pruning all these and Charleston it's just it's awesome it's incredible and, and I see the joy on people's faces on those you know first tomatoes that we deliver in May it's just I, I just everything about it I really like and they, uh, they're a lot of fun a favorite variety I mean if you had to if you if you were going to a desert island and you could only take one what what, what would you what variety of tomatoes would you take with you I love German Johnson I, I, I love the flavor of German Johnson that's a good one. It is. You know, oh. it's pretty standard, but I just, I love that tomato. What's the best advice you've ever gotten, Nate? Don't quit. <laughs> Don't ever quit, you know, and, and, uh, and I think that's, that was advice my dad gave me a long time ago and it's, it's stuck with me and, uh, and, and, uh, and yeah, yeah, it's just, it's just, uh, never give up and just keep pushing. And then uh, maybe I push a little too hard sometimes, but, uh, it's just kind of my nature and I, and I, I kind of live by that. And if you could go back in time, tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? <laughs> That's, it's, yeah. And unfortunately, I know my beginning farmer self pretty well. And I would have had to start with getting a bottle of scotch and a really nice old bottle of scotch and sit down and say, listen, you really have to listen to me <laughs> because I know I, wouldn't, <laughs> I, I probably wouldn't listen very well, <laughs> but I just go get a job to learn how to do this. I, I, I beat my head against the wall for, for so many years trying to figure out what I was doing. Just to go see another, you know, still to this day, I've never seen another production farm like ours, uh, you know, at that scale or, or been around or exposed to it. And just uh, the value of that would be, uh, would have saved me a lot of heartache, I'm sure, over the years. Nate, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Sure, absolutely. Love it. Love it. Thank you for what you're doing. Like I said, it's, uh, it's so great to hear all the other perspectives across the country. It's, it's pretty incredible. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 71 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Parks. That's P-A-R-K-S. As I said at the outset, this episode, with its story, its heart, and its wealth of nuts and bolts information, is exactly what I dreamed of when I sat with my now wife, Angie, in a bar in Northfield, Minnesota back in August of 2014. And I've been overwhelmed by the number of people like Nate who tell me that they look forward every Thursday morning to a new episode and the appreciation that so many listeners have expressed. It really is an honor to be able to produce this show for you. We're working on some ways that you can help support the Farmer to Farmer podcast and be a bigger part of the Purple Pitchfork family. So keep your eyes open, watch us on Facebook, and check your inbox for news about that soon. Now, if you enjoy the podcast, and I assume you do because you're here, I'll bet you'd like being on my email list. You can check that out at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. Also, please head on over to iTunes. Leave us a review if you enjoy the show. It's really our bread and butter. Those referrals make a huge difference in our ability to reach out to a growing circle of listeners. And they're really the bottom line measurement that we can use to talk to sponsors about what makes Farmer to Farmer podcast special. 
You can also talk to us in the show notes. We love your comments and we try to reply to every one of them. Tell your friends about us on Facebook. We look forward to interacting with you in any way we possibly can. Finally, I appreciate so much all the guest suggestions that I receive through the suggestions form on the farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Please let me know who you would like to hear from. I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.